0: You're listening to the PK Experience Podcast. My name is Peter King. I'm the host of the show, and I've got an incredible story to share with you today and my guest. But before I get into that, a couple of things I wanted to ask of you. First and foremost, if you could pull out your mobile phone, open your podcast app, and then do a search for PK Experience. If you haven't yet done so, please subscribe to the podcast and also leave a review. The subscriptions and the reviews help reach more listeners and it helps spread the messages that my guests are sharing and their inspirational stories. Um, I don't get any money for that just to, to grow the podcast. I mean, obviously at some point there will be something there that potentially I can help monetize this um, directly. But as of right now uh, I'm funding the whole thing. And in light of that, if you'd be willing to help um, donate to continue to have me do the podcast, if you go to my website at pkexperience.com forward slash donate, there's an option there for you to donate either one time or monthly. And uh, those donations are huge because it helps offset a lot of the cost that goes into putting out a high quality podcast. Um, There's a lot of editing, audio editing, video editing. Uh, There's hosting fees for the website. There's hosting fees for the audio podcasts um there is a i have an assistant that helps do all of this um there's graphic design development that we do for every episode there's transcription costs which runs about a 100 bucks a pop at least um So there's a lot of costs that go into this. Of course, there's other equipment that I'd love to invest in, et cetera. So your donations, your contributions go a long way to help keep the podcast growing and going. So I thank you so much um, for that. It's deeply humbling, and uh, like I said, I greatly appreciate it. All right, with that, let's get into the call. My guest today is Andrew O'Brien. His story, as I mentioned earlier, is unbelievable. It's incredible the amount of things that he's had to endure and overcome in his life, any one of which would be a huge issue. But Andrew has dealt with so many different things from prostitution. His mother was a prostitute to war, suicide and murder. I'm going to let Andrew tell his story, of course, but um, stay tuned to the very end because as of the date of this the publishing of this podcast he is doing something that is getting a lot of media attention so be sure to listen to that because it's uh truly incredible and you'll probably be able to check out the media and follow what he's doing um but first and foremost let him tell you the story and we'll get to that point all right with that let's get into the call here i am with andrew o'brien all right i'm here with andrew o'brien how are you doing andrew doing good how are you Good man. I am. Uh, I I've been looking forward to this call for. We had to reschedule the, previously, but I've been looking forward to this call for a number of days. Uh, you made a post on Facebook not too long ago that just really kind of blew me away. And we had gotten to know each other a little bit on Facebook, Facebook friends, kind of a thing. Um, chatted a little bit on on Messenger, and you know, I've seen what you've been doing career wise, which has been you know very interesting to me personally, and. and some of the PR stuff that you've been helping out people with, but then to hear a little bit more of the personal side of things was just, uh, I was like, Oh man, I, I I had already wanted to get you on the podcast with the stuff you've been doing with your marketing and whatnot. But man, on the personal side of things, I was like, all right, this is, I definitely want to hear more about your story. It's, it's crazy. But for those that don't know who you are just yet, let's give them a a quick 30, 60 second overview, the macro level of who is Andrew O'Brien and then we can kind of, get into your Facebook posts.
1: Yeah, sure, so I am an entrepreneur, been an entrepreneur since I got out of the army uh, in 2011, done a bunch of different businesses, built a really successful PR firm uh, to over seven figures this first year and then crashed and burned it and then uh, learned a lot in that failure. Uh, Got back into the PR world in a very unique way now. Uh, and then as I is continuing to build, my team is co- maintaining it and everything is growing to where I can finally work on the business instead of in the business. And I've really wanted to focus back towards my passion of really focusing on mental health, overcoming adversity, uh, things of that nature. So that's the, the macro view of who I am.
0: Dude, that was a very well, like you created a very concise, I'm impressed with, <laughs> with all the stuff that you've been through and that, that was very clear. So on the mental health side of things, um, it sounds like you've had your handful to, to manage and navigate through. Um, let's talk about that Facebook post. Did it, it seemed to got, get a lot of attention. Tell people who haven't, you know, obviously who aren't aware of it, what you revealed there and, and what's come up from that since then.
1: Yeah, so I've experienced like four pretty major hurdles by the age of 23. And those four hurdles were prostitution, war, suicide, and murder. So I was raised by a prostitute mother who was a stripper, cheated on every man she'd ever been with, really created some uh, mommy issues inside of me where I didn't like women for the majority of my life. Um, and not, uh, not like I didn't like them in a very intimate way, just more of a deeper connection where I didn't trust women. Uh, and then I joined the army, did uh, a year over in Iraq where I served as a lead gunner, experienced that, and then came home a year later, tried to take my own life uh, and luckily survived that suicide attempt, but it got really close. They didn't know if I was going to live or not because they were waiting to see if my kidneys were going to fail. Cause I tried to overdose on over 120 pills that were depression, and anxiety pills, yeah. or, or I'm sorry, de- depression and sleep medication. Uh, and then, after I woke up, had this newfound appreciation for life. And then after that, my mom murdered her husband, shot him point blank in the head while he was sleeping. And as I was cleaning his remains out of the carpet, she had asked me to help frame someone else for the murder in which I testified against her in court where she was sentenced to 60 years in prison. It went all over the news. It was on 2020, 20, 48 hours, Nancy Grace, the TV show snapped and I still get hit up at least once a year on another show. That's going to be about what she did,
0: man, dude, that, no wonder you're into mental health. That's a shit ton to <laughs> handle. I mean, how do you how do you even begin to grapple with all that?
1: You know, it was really just one step at a time. I think when you are raised in such a crazy life where things are constantly going wrong, things are constantly happening, you have two choices. You can either, either find out how to be strong um, or you can allow it to destroy you. And obviously, with my suicide attempt, there was a time where I was going to allow it to destroy me. Uh, But I had to really learn how to overcome that and realize that no matter what happens in my life, I somehow got the got to be the lucky one that's always going to have the craziest things happen, right? Not just not just simple everyday normal life things. It seems to be always the extremes. And so it's gotten to this point in my life where every time something bad happens, I just laugh because I just know this isn't even going to be the worst. There's going to be something worse that happens one day. Uh, And I had to figure out how to become resilient and just take take the hits as they come and then fight back.
0: How do you, one of the things that I've seen where people have dealt with traumatic experiences as children is in, in a way to almost survive emotionally, you have to disassociate because if you're going to feel that pain all the time, it's, it's too much and it can, and it can destroy you. And so part of a survival mechanism is to hold things off at arm's length, if not further to disassociate from that experience. But, but, If you do that too long, you, you condition yourself to not feel emotion and not be alive and then that can be depressing. How have you been able to manage that to where you can still, and maybe this is still work in progress. I don't mean to assume one thing or another, but how do you, how do you continue to feel um, knowing that there's tremendous pain out there, you know what I mean, and still be vulnerable and open to being alive without falling into the trap of, you know, numbing yourself just to survive emotionally. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of my childhood, I don't remember. Uh, It's all a blur, right? And what happens as children is our brain blocks out certain experiences because it can't process it. Right. So there's a lot of my childhood that is just a blur. And I think that is my brain's defensive mechanism of protecting myself. Right. But like you said, I did become that person. I did distance myself. I stopped feeling I stopped feeling so much to the point to where I started chasing to feel right. I would get in relationships with women just so I could feel something. Cause I, I just wanted to feel what, what love really felt like. Cause I didn't know what love was, um, which meant I got in bad relationships with the wrong people because I was just searching for some form of connection, some form of emotion because I had, you know, my brain had shut off all emotion. I literally The only emotion i seemed to ever have was anger it wasn't ever happiness contentment love sadness depression it was just anger like that was just what my brain had and it really caused a lot of turmoil in my life to the point to where uh you know the mother of my children i would emotionally abuse her um and that's not something i say with pride it's not something i say with a smile it's just me being fully transparent I treated her like crap, and it was because of my hate towards women, because of my mother, my mommy issues, and it took a lot for me to face that, right, and it took a lot for me to figure out how do I overcome that, and I I believe that the easiest thing for all of us to do anytime we go through any experience, whether it's divorce, being cheated on, our parents disappointing us, whatever it is, the, the death of a child, we all find a way to shut off all emotions because it hurts too much. Right. And I think that's just a natural instinct. But I also think by shutting off those emotions, we feel like we're helping ourselves when really we're just hurting ourselves.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. And and certainly something that I think people can grasp on an intellectual level, but um, to to go there emotionally can be extremely difficult. Um mm-hmm. Uh, I really appreciate your willingness to be open about your experience and your transparency and your vulnerability. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I. What?
1: W- where's your father in all this? So my father wasn't around much when I was a kid. He had me. Uh, he had my brother when he was seventeen, and my bro- and me when he was nineteen. Wow. My sister when he was twenty-two. So he was really young. Um, he did uh drop out of high school and join the army to take care of us. We did live with him for I think I was maybe 3 or 4. Uh I was probably about 4 or 5 actually when my mom and dad got divorced. Um but he had found out that she was sleeping around, she was having sex with all of his buddies while he was out in the field while he was in the army. He she was that army wife that we all have heard of um that just slept around with everybody and she made his life really hard and he was so young and so it was just easier for him to disappear for a while now now i have a relationship with him because he was he was a grown enough man to come to me uh when i was 19 and apologize to me for not being there he he was such he was willing to apologize and i was man enough to accept that apology understanding what kind of father would i have been at 17 right? What yeah. kind of father would I have been at 19? So as, as we get older, we learn to think more adult about situations versus, you know, just hating people because of decisions they made so long ago. When In reality, we probably would have made the same decision at that age.
0: Dude, that, that in and of itself is worthy of an entire podcast call, if if not an entire, you know, uh, theme for a podcast. It's just that idea of forgiveness um, and your, your willingness at even 19 to Empathize with his experience and where he was and the troubles he 's been through and i 'm sure there 's still pain there and i 'm sure there's still you know some open wounds or whatever, but to uh, surrender to that and have forgiveness for that is I commend you greatly that 's not an easy thing to do. Have you found uh, space in your heart to forgive your mother so I have
1: forgiven her uh, in the past I have actually gone to visit her in prison uh, but when I went to visit her in prison in 2015 to forgive her, I didn't get it all out. I was, I was intimidated. I was scared. I don't think I was ready at that time. Um, I knew I wanted to, but internally, mentally, I just wasn't ready for it. So what I'm doing now is actually on June 27th, uh, 26th, I am walking. I'm doing uh, a walk to the prison to visit my mother. So it's over 100 miles. It'll take me about three days and I'm going to forgive her entirely. I'm going to forgive her for everything and I'm going to process this. Throughout this 100-mile journey, uh, I'm gonna be processing all the memories and remembering and trying to figure out exactly what I wanna say, how I wanna say it, and forgiving her while I'm on this journey, while I'm walking, you know, forgiving her one step at a time to so the point where I can see her. And it's not for her. I don't want a relationship with her. I believe you can forgive someone and not maintain a relationship with them. Um, I'm doing this for me. I'm doing this because I want to be happy. I want to be a better father. I want to, you know, not be so angry at women. Um, I want to find a way to move forward in my life. And the only way that's going to happen is if I learn to forgive her like I did my dad
0: hundred um, percent. Again, huge mountain to climb, but uh, it takes a lot of strength and courage to do that. I, and I agree with you. Forgiveness really is, uh, I made a, a Facebook post on this maybe like a year ago or whatever, where a lot of times I think people who have been victimized by somebody else have a difficult time giving forgiveness because it feels like it's forgiving them, like letting them off the hook or condoning their actions when really it's about forgiving it's forgiving is for giving to yourself. And like you said, having that emotional healing so that you can move on with your life. And yes, there is value, I think, in and freeing them up too, because you're, you're elevating the consciousness, you're elevating, you know, the, you're maturing the relationship to where hopefully that can be healing for her too. And, but you're not, it sounds like what, like you said, you're not really doing it for her, but there might be a byproduct for her where she gets to go, wow, like, maybe that helps her heal a little bit too and, and and mature and et cetera. Have you been in contact with her since she's been in prison? No, I haven't.
1: So I actually testified against her and um, I, I went to visit her once. Other than that, she sent me a letter one time. Um, outside of that, we've never had any communication. And you know, another thing that, I think it's important of understanding is when we forgive people is understanding that no humans are born evil or mean, you know, we're a byproduct of our own lives. So I have to understand while I am so angry at what she put me through both and asked me to frame someone else for a murder in my childhood and everything that's ever happened between the two of us, I have to understand that she is a human and she's a byproduct of something that happened in her life that created this this woman in her so i have to and forgiveness i think it's also important for us to understand that it's not it is about forgiving for us it is important to understand that they are humans and it is important to set them free too And I don't think we can truly forgive someone to its entirety until we understand that they are just a human. They aren't evil. They aren't, there's no devil inside of them. This literally is just a human who made bad decisions because they're a byproduct of something that happened in their life and they never faced that and became a a worse person because of that.
0: Yeah. I think we often tend to, when we're dealing with scars that we've, received from our parents, we tend to have these blinders on and and think of them as these all perfect beings that should have known or should have done better or should have done this, that or whatever. And for you to be able to sort of zoom back and see them as just a child too, probably at some point that was an environment that was not serving them, that they didn't know how to handle or whatever. I, I look at the evolution from generation to generation and how many more tools we have today with the internet, with the stuff that you're doing, with the stuff that other people are doing to to help with the mind health, to help navigate the psychological wounds that a lot of us have dealt with in our childhoods. Um, they didn't have that, you know, and and just I think generationally, it was a different culture, a different environment. Um, I think we're much more open and feminine in a good way to, to feel what other people are feeling and sometimes maybe too much but I think just where we are culturally today uh, lends itself to that type of healing in a way that maybe our parents and previous generations just simply didn't have.
1: <clears throat> Would you agree with oh, yeah. that?
0: Yeah,
1: I definitely agree with that. I think it's, I think it's often easier mm-hmm. to demonize the other person. Uh, and I think if we really take a step back and think about the people we've hurt, You know, when I think about the things I've done to the mother of my children and the things that I said, and I never physically hurt her. But there were times where I was extremely emotionally abusive. And when I look back to those times, one, I am so sorry for what I did to her. And I've apologized over and over to her. And we've really fixed a lot in our relationship since then. Not that we have a perfect relationship, but I was able to realize my mistakes and change who I was. But I think when we look at Instead of, it's so much easier to focus on the people that hurt us um, and we forget to think about the people we've hurt, right? I think if we we find that way, right, we think about that. We've all hurt someone, whether it was our children because we hurt their feelings, whether it was a significant other, a brother, a sister, our, our own parents, we've all hurt someone said things and I don't think there's anyone in this world that has never hurt another human being some way. And so if we look back at ourselves and realize that we aren't really that much different than those that have hurt us, we may have not done it to the extreme levels that those people have, but we've all hurt people. And I think Absolutely. it makes it easier
0: to forgive when we realize that. Oh, 100%. Um, are you willing to share a little bit more about the murder? like What, what happened there? And walk us through that a little bit if you're, if you're willing to do so.
1: Yeah, so his name was Greg. It was her husband. He was a successful entrepreneur, um, and by successful, to me, he was making about eight hundred thousand a year, um, which was new for us. We grew up in poverty, motel rooms, trailer parks, all that stuff. But he was not a good person, um, and I don't see long ago lightly.
0: How long ago was this? I'm sorry. He,
1: uh, she had murdered him in 2011. She went to trial and was found guilty in 2014. So it was a three year process. And so how um, old were you at the time? It, I was in 2011, I was 23. So 2014, I was 25. Okay. So I'm sorry. So they, they were married then? Yeah. Yeah. They had been married. Um, I lost contact with my mom while I was in the army and, um, because I didn't want to have contact with her anymore. Uh, I came home from mid-tour, uh, deploy- like R&R from, from deployment, and ended up reconnecting with her. Greg was not a good person. He had been with my mom since I was 17, and he would uh, tell me how much of a failure I was gonna be. He'd always like pull out wads of money and slap me in the face with him and tell me I would never amount to anything, and he was just not a good person. Um, and so I never liked him at all. And I really, I, I was angry at my mom, for being with a man and allowing a man to treat me that way and just sit back and watch right that made me more angry at her Mm -hmm. um and so i lost contact i got back in contact i got out of the army uh was rebuilding a relationship with her i was lost in what i wanted to do i moved to chicago chicago for a little bit to go stay with my uh, buddy from the army to figure out what next step and next phase of my life i was going to do I uh, started going to college, actually just enrolled in college, got a call from my brother that um, he said, someone broke into the house, they hit mom and killed Greg. And so I immediately jumped on an airplane to come back, right? Because they had, the story was someone broke into the house, hit my mother and shot Greg in the head. Um, and so I came home and found out uh, while we are cleaning up the the scene, because in in the movies, other people come clean up the scene. That's only if you have the money to. She didn't want to spend the money on that. So my brother and I were scrubbing his remains out of the oh. carpet. Um, had, had they called the cops by while then? While we were doing that. Yeah, yeah. So the cops had already come and you know taken all the evidence, and then they cleared the scene. And so we went back to the house. We had to go and stay in some hotel rooms for a while because the media – was surrounding us and following us everywhere because it was a hot topic in the news. They called, called her the black widow of Texas. Mm -hmm. Um, so, but when the news finally calmed down a little bit, we went back to the house and, uh, they had already cleared the scene. So we were cleaning his remains out of the carpet and we couldn't get out of the carpet and it was starting to smell bad. So we cut the carpet open to, you know, remove that part. So it wouldn't smell so bad. And when we lifted it up, man, that smell was just something that's burned into your memories. It's mm. something that you'll never forget. And so we had to vomit when we did that. So We go outside to vomit. And she had asked me to, um, she, while we were outside, she had said, hey, come over here. Uh, I can't say this inside because I don't know if the house is bugged. And she had asked me to help frame his ex-wife for the murder. And um, I just listened in shock. I didn't know what to say. Uh, I even considered doing it. You know, I considered doing it because all I ever wanted from my mom was love. And right. so I thought maybe if I did this, you know, mm-hmm. I can earn that love. I can finally have that, that emotion that I've been craving from her. But I decided not to do it. I didn't want to give up my freedom for this woman who never gave me any
0: freedom. Right. Um, moved so away t- and I wasn't going to say, oh, good. By her telling you that, are you then realizing that, oh, she committed the murder?
1: Yeah, I mean, at this point, I finally started to believe it because she had told us she hadn't done it. The cops are lying. Everybody's lying. And um, she's always been a habitual liar her entire life. She's really good at lying and getting getting away with things. And so I, you know, believed her until that point. And it was at that point that I realized if you aren't guilty, why would you try to frame an innocent person for murder?
0: How did did that make you feel like how do you process that? Well, at that point, I was just like, you know what?
1: I can't be part of this life anymore, this family. I can't be part of her. Um, and so I moved away. And I wasn't going to say anything to anyone. I wasn't going to tell the cops or anything. Because even though it would have been the right thing, it wasn't about the right thing. It still was my mother, right? It still was the person who gave birth to me. And we don't want to send them to prison for the rest of their life. No, so I, I just yeah. moved away and kept my mouth shut and... Then I found out she was trying to pin the murder on my brother. And she was trying to trick people into believing that my brother did it because my brother had fought Greg numerous times while I was a teenager. Uh, My brother was always my protector. And every time Greg would treat me like crap or say something bad to me, my brother would go and fight him. And so she was using that because it had all been documented. She was using that to try and make it make people believe that I would have been him because they had had so many altercations in the past. And it was at that point when I realized she was trying to plant that seed in people's heads, that it could have been my brother that I decided to go tell the cops what she had asked me to do. Uh, She really
0: forced your hand. I mean, yeah. So you go to the cops uh, and tell them what, what did they do? Well, they
1: told me that this was great, and then um, they had asked me that you know they recorded this the conversation. They came down to Austin at this time. I lived in Austin. This all happened in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. They came down to Austin, recorded my conversation, then told me that I would have to testify in court. And I told them I'd have no problem with that. And I was—I got to this point because. I loved my brother more than I loved my mom because he was always there for me a lot more than her. So in this point in my head, it wasn't, I wasn't doing this out of anger towards her. I was doing this to protect my brother.
0: Sure. Did, was there a part of you though, that did feel um, some sort of vindication or retribution by, by being able to, you know, tell the truth and have your mother deal with the repercussions of that? To be honest, no,
1: there was no positive feeling towards it at all. Uh, Nothing about this felt good. I know that a lot of people have told me that when they've heard this story, you know, you did the right thing. Good job for doing the right thing. It wasn't, I didn't do it in order to do the right thing, right? And I've always been honest about that. I did it purely to protect my brother from being accused of something he didn't do. Sure, um, But I never, at, at no point have I felt like it was a great thing to do. And I, I didn't make the decision because it was the right thing.
0: Right. That makes sense. And I, I can appreciate that. It happened to be the right thing to do, but your motivation was to, was to protect your brother, which makes sense. Yeah. Um, so how did your mother respond to that? When she, once she saw that you were basically testifying against her? She didn't know until we were in the court. And so, uh,
1: oh, you know, it was all courtroom? caught in the news. Yeah, in the courtroom. So, at her case. So, she didn't know until they called me up on stand. And oh I went up on gosh. stand. She just, it was crazy, man. I'm in the courtroom surrounded by, you know, there's a jury of 12 people, and the court is filled with cameras and reporters and everything. And I go walk in and I sit down. I say my oath, I sit down, and there she is. She's just staring a hole through me Like right? she's just staring at me like she wants to hurt me um and it was it was really hard you know i in my head i was like i can do this no problem but when you're sitting there and your mother is staring at you in a courtroom about murder it was a very overwhelming feeling i couldn't even make eye contact i couldn't look at her because i felt so bad for what i was doing
0: yeah uh did you, did you see her after you said anything? Did you ever look over at her after you testified?
1: I looked at her a couple times. I mean, I had to point out to, to her and name her, right? So who are we talking about? Is Point to Michelle Williams. Oh, um, and it, that was the only time I looked at her and I saw her just staring a hole through my soul and it was, it was rough.
0: Wow. Wow, that's heavy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so then she gets, uh, she gets sentenced. Mm-hmm. That, I'm, I'm sure that was kind of the, the, I mean, that was the testimony that basically put her away. Did it not? Or was it, not? it was part of
1: it. But the other part was 48 hours. So actually the interview with 48 hours is a big play into why she was found guilty as well. She has uh, given a plea deal, um, for five years. Um, it was manslaughter and she was given a plea deal to do five years in prison because they just didn't have enough physical evidence and they didn't think it'd be a, they didn't think they'd be able to win so that she was given a plea deal and she accepted it. But then during 48 hours, she told 48 hours that she was not guilty. And so the judge had to remove the plea deal because if she was going to say that she was not guilty, then she, has to go to court and do the whole process because if you're not guilty, then you can't, you know, you can't take a plea deal. Um, and so he was, she was asked in court, you know, after the 48 hours interview, do you, are you guilty or are you not? Because if you are guilty, you get the plea deal, you go for five years. If you're not, we got to go to trial. She said not guilty. And so she went to trial and was sentenced to 60 years.
0: She could have done five. She could have been
1: out already. She could have been out this year.
0: Oh my God! she buried herself. Wow. Yeah. Did, um? I mean, did they have the murder weapon? Did they find the gun? Yeah, she shot him with his own gun. I mean, wasn't that, was there not enough evidence? So they were just saying that there was not enough evidence to show that it was premeditated or something like that? Or what, what was there not enough evidence? It was...
1: So this happened in Keller, Texas, which is a very rich neighborhood. Um, you know, the kind of de- things they have to deal with is maybe break-ins or, or shoplifting, right? So it's not like they have to deal with murder on a daily basis. So when they did go in and it was a murder scene, the initial, like, initial cops and investigators screwed everything up. They screwed up the evidence. They screwed up everything. Um, but he was actually shot with his own gun uh, from over 12 inches away. Um, and so she, her story was someone broke in to the house and shot him. But the problem is that meant someone had to break into the house, go get his gun, which was in his nightstand and then shoot him in the head from the other side of the bed instead of just shooting him from right there by his nightstand with his own gun. And why would you break into a house and kill someone that's sleeping with their own weapon? If you don't, you know, how would you even know that there's a weapon there and, is all that, but she had cleaned up the scene with uh, Clorox wipes. So there was no gunpowder residue. There was no, they had no strong physical evidence.
0: Wow. Wow. Okay. So, <clears throat> so she gets put away. Now, are you, were you in the army at this point? Remind me chronologically. Yeah. No,
1: no, I was, I was out at that point. I was living in Chicago. So this was at the end of 2000, October of 2011.
0: Okay. You mentioned earlier that, um, your life seems to be dealing with the extremes. Did you experience extremes over uh, in theater as well?
1: No, you know what? Overseas was actually not that bad. I I always say it was dangerous, but I had gotten there by 2008 to 2009 and I was in Iraq. And so at this point, there was still some stuff that would happen, but it wasn't extreme, right? It wasn't like going back out there in 2001. Um, So, I had survived a su uh, an IED attack. I had um had bullets fly by me a couple times. Um I had a good friend that got hurt and he got shot 10 times uh in the arm, but that was while I was back home. Um so I was on my mid tour leave, which is like your vacation break, 2 week vacation break during deployment. So that I wasn't there for that ex- experience. So a few things happened but nothing to the extreme of like what you would see in movies.
0: Right. Um, as somebody that has, uh, you know, a lot of times you hear about soldiers and the trauma that they experience in war or whatever, and the, and the, um, army's resources to help them with mental health. Um, a lot of times you don't necessarily think though about what about guys that come in or women for that matter, that go into the army with mental issues already. Like, I mean, you've already dealt with a lot of stuff going in. Is there support for our soldiers that are you know, dealing with mental issues? And if so, like, how does that work? And what's needed there? Help me better understand a little bit of that. So you're supposed to be screened
1: before you join the army to make sure you don't have any mental issues. And if you have them, you won't be accepted, right? Because they're really strict on who they allow in. And a lot of people have their own opinions on, on that. I think it's smart, right? I don't think that adding someone with can you know, existing mental conditions into worse mental environments is going to result in any positive outcome. Um, A lot of people don't know that the majority. So, you know, about one soldier takes their own life every 26 to 28 hours Mm -hmm. on it. Like that's the average number. Um, So there's a lot over 300 soldiers are are service members are taking their own life every Year In the military, what a lot of people don't know is over, I think it's over 90% of them have never deployed to a combat zone. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, And so a lot of people think that that's because of war, but actually, it's not. Um, A lot of if you think about who the military draws from, right? It's not people that have the option of going to college the majority of the time. It's not people who grew up in a middle class or upper class family the majority of the time. Most of the people who join the military, at least the Army and the Marines and the Navy, are going to be people from poverty, right? They're going to be kids that come from um, broken families, uh, rough life. Those are the people who join the military. So if you think about it, almost everybody joining the military has gone through some mental issues because of the life they were raised in. We just don't consider that when we think about the suicide numbers and the mental health issues There's actually a lot more because we have them before we go in. And what a lot of people don't know when it comes to PTSD, when you have PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress disorder, when you have that from childhood, but you don't know that you have it, uh, your brain doesn't process everything until your mid twenties for some reason. And so by the time that you are processing everything from your childhood, you've already been in the military. So now, plus the military experience, plus the stress of being in the military and adding on top of your childhood trauma is never going to end up in a positive
0: end result. Um, I had Tom Satterley on my podcast a while ago, and he brought up, um, uh, which I love, he, he says, I don't call it PTSD, I call it PTS, because it's not a disorder. Mm-hmm. When you deal with trauma and you have, uh, you're have you working through that, that's the normal reaction, the normal response to seeing things and, and experiencing things that, you're, that you shouldn't be, have experienced. And so, of course, you're going to have some issues in navigating to find, back, you know, find your way back to wholeness and, and health. Not that you're even unwhole to begin with, but um, I might be speaking out of turn. I obviously don't have experience with that, but um, I like that idea that it's really not even a disorder. It's just post-traumatic stress. You're just dealing with the stress of something traumatic. Well, and I also think it's important to have the
1: conversation that PTS is not just a military thing, right? A lot of people associate it with soldiers and Marines and war. But in reality, I mean, if you're a child and you go touch an electric socket, right, and and it shocks you and it hurts really bad. Every time you see that electric socket, you're going to get scared. Every time you see that electric socket, you're going to stay as far away from it as possible. I believe anyone that's experienced any form of trauma and trauma can even be being cheated on. That can be traumatic for someone who gave all their heart and love and trust into someone who destroyed that. You can still have trauma from that. And what happens is you take that trauma into your next relationship and now you don't trust that person. Now you want to check their phone and check their emails and make sure that they're not cheating on you because... As human beings, our natural instinct is that hurt, let's make sure I I don't experience that again. So I think post traumatic stress is the stress of anything that's happened that has hurt you, either physically or emotionally, in your response and your reaction to dealing
0: with that. Absolutely. I appreciate that you widen that spectrum because there's a lot of people that have dealt with sexual abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse, um, just a huge change in the family dynamics, divorce. Uh, losing a job, like all of that can be very traumatic, especially for children, but adults too, of course. Um, mm-hmm. I was driving home not too long ago. I posted about this on Facebook earlier this year, car accident right in front of me. Person, I was first responder and the person died right in front of me. That's traumatic. It doesn't matter how old you are or whatever. There, there's trauma there. So I, I appreciate you opening that up because obviously we do focus a lot on our soldiers and, and, and we should, and we ought to bring them the resources and the love and the help that they need. Um, but a lot of us, everybody kind of, you live long enough, you're going to deal with something. I mean, it's, it's yeah. a lot. So, and, and it really does, it goes beyond just, um, uh, it, it affects all socioeconomics as, uh, economic, um, uh, pockets of people. I mean, it it, it really does. I, I've been fortunate to live uh, in a more affluent lifestyle. My father did very well in his business and I can tell you that people that have money are just as screwed up and have just as many problems or whatever and and they're different problems but they're problems nonetheless and they can be very traumatic and they can be very, um, you know, disorienting and, and problematic for the people that experience them there too. So, anyway. Um moving forward. So you've dealt with a lot of this. One of the things that I was so inspired by that I saw that I've been seeing from you ever since you popped up on my radar is your hunger for, for healing, for health, to serve, to help other people. Um, you have a very, uh, confident, strong, um, nature about you, but there's also that vulnerability and you've been very open about, Hey, I'm not, uh, I'm not coming to you from, uh, total mastery. I'm, I'm in the journey. Come, and, and I've seen some of your posts are like, hey, come along. I, I'm, not a, I'm not a masterpiece yet. I'm working on it. I find that to be hugely inspiring. And I appreciate that you're willing to do that. But, but moving forward from that, like, what does that journey look like? What are you, what does success look like to you? And I don't mean just financially, I mean, in life, like, what, what is the vision as you see it? You know, for me, I think what happens
1: right now is we all get so stuck in um, what I call the Superman syndrome. And what we do is we see all these people, right? If we look at the personal development world, someone like Tony Robbins, right? Tony Robbins, great. He's influenced so many people's lives and his life looks so amazing out in that mansion. He has his morning routines and it just looks like Tony Robbins has like the perfect life. But people don't realize that the fifth woman has come out and talked about um, how he sexually abused her. So now he's being attacked and people are saying he did things. Whether he did them or not is not important. What I'm talking about in this conversation is we all want to look at people as if their life is perfect. And that's why I'm doing it the way I am. It's, I'm not here to pretend like my life is perfect. So when you ask what success looks like to me, I don't think I'll ever reach full success. What I think success is for me is that every single day I'm taking one step forward into becoming a better person, a better human, and I don't think I'm ever going to perfect it, Uh, but success to me is consistently working on that every single day to become better, right? I think that we all get so caught up in bills and problems and all this stuff that we forget that to take time every day to just work on becoming a better person, forgiving something, processing a memory, spending more time with our children, whatever that looks like, right? We, we don't take enough time because of all the other stresses to just work on ourselves. So um, that's what success is to me. And then also on the, the guru side, right? There's a lot of people in the personal development world are doing this. You got people who are making people do Push ups in the sand right and like all this hardcore workout and be a so like it's like soldier training right problem is i've already been through that that's not going to help me right. um you've got other guys who are just hardcore be a man be tough all that stuff and i i love that message right but it's just not what works well for me um and then you've got other guys who are doing shrooms and lsd and talking about how those drugs are opening their mind i loved lsd as a child i, I had a great time on that However, for me, I want to be able to process and experience and become better sober because I don't feel like it counts. It's kind of like if I have sex with a woman while we're both drunk, that doesn't count to me because it, you know, we weren't in the right frame of mind. So for me, if I'm going to become a better person, I need to be completely sober. I need to believe that I can do it without the help of any outside sources to influence my brain. Um, And so for me, it's I want to become not a lead, not a guru, not an influencer. I want to lead people. I want to lead people by taking the steps instead of just telling them what to do. Like most people do now.
0: Yeah. I think just to speak on some of that, you've, you've brought up a number of things in that, but um, first and foremost, I've been in the Tony Robbins world for a while. I've been to a lot of his uh, events. I've had the pleasure of hanging out at his house in Sun Valley, Idaho. And, um, I wouldn't say at all that I'd gotten to know him on a personal level, but I've certainly been around him in close, uh, in close proximity. Um, and I just want to say that like, there's been a lot of allegations that have come out against him. A lot of the people that they said did certain things against him have, have also come out to say, no, that's, those aren't true. Um, and I do think that that's important. And I get that you were bringing it up not to necessarily validate or invalidate or whatever, but um, I do think it's important to look at because, I do think that societally, we are struggling with relationships specifically and how men and women re, uh, uh, relate. And Tony Robbins has been for a lot of people, a very strong role model in masculinity and uh, and that what does it mean to be a man? And obviously, we get his highlight reel. Um, we get to see, you know, the perfect polished, uh, edited version of his life. Um, one of the things that I've been able to get out of being around him is that, no, it's not perfect. And yes, he's a human being. And there's times where he's said things that I'm like, eh, uh, you know, that doesn't work for me. I, I'm going to choose something different. I've had him give me one-on-one direct input and advice on stuff that I disagreed with. And I did, I went to what I feel is my higher power. Tony Robbins is not my God. He's not my guru. Um, and so I, I, I had to sit and think about things and where is my heart? And Tony doesn't know my world. He doesn't know. So I have to make the best decision for me. So ultimately, that decision needs to be made um, independent of Tony Robbins. And obviously, I respect his input. But um, I think that when it comes to a lot of the stuff that we're talking about, in this conversation, we are talking about relationships. We are talking about men and women and love and and vulnerability and pain and all those things. And what does that idealized version look like? I think again, for a lot of people, Tony Robbins represented that. So I do think it's important to look at that and say, hey, look, are these allegations true? Not to get too far off on the subject. But um, I think it's helpful because if that gets dismantled, if we look at that and we say, uh, you know, there's been uh, things that have now been revealed about JFK, about Martin Luther King, that, you know, the FBI files have been opened up on that. A lot of these guys are, guess what? Human beings and, and not to condone the behavior or whatever, but we're dealing with in an imperfect uh, experience right now. And, and I think we're all looking for that perfectly polished, unblemished, Version and it's just not going to be there. And again, that's not to uh, condone anybody. It. It's just to say that that we need to perhaps look at things with a little bit more empathy. Like we're not perfect either. You know, the people who are throwing stones aren't perfect either. But uh, anyway, I think it's important to look at. So when we look at relationships moving forward for you, how do you how do you look at and I know you're taking one step at a time, but do you have a sense of what that vision looks like for you? What is a healthy, re- maybe this is a good question. What's that, what's a healthy relationship look like for you? And, and also while you're explaining that, what's the relationship like with your, you, did you get a divorce? Is that, do I understand that? No. So uh,
1: <laughs> it's been, it's been jumping back and forth, right? Okay. So as, as I always say in my journey, I'm always going to be very, very fully transparent in everything. Right. So right now, my relationship is struggling back and forth, back and forth. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad. Um, And so from what I see as a healthy relationship is pretty easy in my head to explain. A healthy relationship doesn't mean that we are happy every single day because that's unrealistic. Right. We like you said, we have to understand the reality of life. Right. We do see the edited version of Tony Robbins life. But let's look at the reality. None of us are going to be happy every single day bad things are going to happen. A healthy relationship to me is communication, right? It's talking in a calm manner. It's being able to resolve situations before they get heated, right? It, it is a peaceful environment, a peaceful conversation when someone's feelings are hurt or something happened that they didn't like or whatever it may be. Um, so I'm not divorced at this point. We're at this point. We're in the crossroads where we don't know in which direction it's going to go, right? Uh, I am actually living in the guest house on my 18 acre property. We are taking time apart, uh, you know, without me moving into a whole different house. So that the kids, you know, I'm still here with the kids, all that stuff. But right now we're trying to figure that out. We're going to go see a couple's counselor. We're going to try to work through things and we're going to put in an effort. I think people oftentimes quit too easily, but at the same time, I think that we hold on too long. Right. And so at this point in my life, I don't know at which one I am. I don't know if I'm holding on too long or if I'm trying to quit too easily. Uh So right now I believe that you don't leave a relationship until you've tried every route. Right. So this is the last step. This is the last step on the journey. Try the counseling. If that doesn't work, then we can both be able to walk away peacefully, hopefully, um, and move forward with our lives, knowing that we both tried. Mm-hmm. Um, so, healthy a healthy relationship is just communication and being able to talk things out.
0: Yeah. Um, how many kids do you have? Uh, three. What? What? Uh,
1: boy, girl. What ages? I got a 10-year-old daughter. Uh, I didn't make her, but I claim her. I've
0: got a five-year-old son and a two-year-old daughter. Oh, that's beautiful. What, um, what do you see as your role in their lives? Uh, your role as a father to your daughter and your role as a father to your son? My role to
1: them is, you know, one, I'm a very strict father. I have fun with them. Don't think that I beat my kids. I have fun with them. I kiss them every day. I kiss them about 20 times a day. But my role is to prepare them for what life is. I think that's where our generation is failing um, I think that's what's going to make things worse is we are trying to give participation trophies and act like life is just going to hand you everything. And my role is to prepare them for what life really is, right? It's hard. It's tough. There's going to be hard situations. You're not going to succeed every time you're going to fail a lot. You're going to fall down. You're going to have to be able to dust yourself off. You can't just sit there and cry about it. Um, so my role is to toughen them up to get them ready, but it's also to show them what a relationship should be, right? So For my son, I want him to be in a healthy relationship. For my daughter, I want her to look for a good man. Um, And I think that my role and the mother of my children's role is to figure out, is to provide that, become that role model to them of showing them what life is truly going to be about. We're not here to be your friend. Um, I'm here to be your dad. And this is what a healthy relationship looks like. And it's okay to walk away from a relationship
0: that is only causing damage in your life. Gotcha. Um, What about, what does it mean to be a man? How would you answer that?
1: You know, what it means to be a man is I am, uh, I I, I have to admit that I'm still old school. I believe that men should always be the providers. It doesn't mean they should be the only providers, Um, but I would never sit at, I would never feel comfortable sitting at home while my wife went to work. Um, one, I don't have the patience (laughs) with my kids. I love them, but I can't spend 24 seven with them. Um, I believe being a man is providing for your family financially is providing for your family emotionally. It's supporting them, uh, and the decisions that they make and it's giving them structure and discipline and preparing them for what the future is going to hold. Um, that is my view of what a man is.
0: I, I saw, um, (laughs) I mentioned this on a call the other day there was a show back in the day called Shalom in the Home. And it was with uh, Rabbi Shmuley. And he shared something, a bit of wisdom that I've always carried with me for it. And he talked about the role of a father in uh, a daughter's life. And he said that the role of a father to a daughter is to show her her worth. And the only way Mm -hmm. that you can really show a daughter her worth is that that if you're a man of an integrity, I'm I'm sort of not extrapolating a little bit about what he said, so the only way that you can really show her her worth is to be a man of integrity and to be your word so that when you communicate to her, there's weight to it. There's gravitas, there's truth to it. And so sometimes, mm-hmm. and I think as uh, men, I heard somewhere else that said, um, a mother's love is special because it's unconditional and a father's love is special because it's earned. And that, that um, those combined energies of that you were always loved no matter what, and that there's always room for more. There's always you can always be better. You can always improve. I think it's a very powerful combination, a very spiritual combination. And so I hear you're I, I hear in you that that you're definitely doing that to let them know that, you know, that, that there's more and things like that. But, um, I, uh, it, it's, I know that some people will have an issue with that because the the traditional, I have to be the provider. But um, I, I have found consistently that 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 typically is what works not to say that it's the only way I think it's possible um, for it to to work another way. But do you think it's possible?
1: I think it is. And you know, what's funny is when we talk about our own personal beliefs, people often say, you know, throw mean words out towards those people because they don't agree with them. Now, if people listening to that, you know, turn off the emotional side and the logical side of their thinking and understand that what I said was, this is my belief of what I what defines me as a man. I didn't say that any man that is at home taking care of the children while the woman is at work is not a man. Yeah. I said what, what being a man to me means, right? What I see myself, what would make me proud as a man is providing for my family, is paying the bills, is putting food on the table, is providing love while also p- providing structure and discipline. I am not a very emotional father. I am not a very... Um, super affectionate. I do love my kids. I hug them. I kiss them, but I, when they're hurt, they don't come to daddy for comfort. They come to daddy for toughness. They come to me for me to say, okay, I understand it hurts. Rub it. There's no blood. Stop crying. You got to toughen up. It'll be okay. Right. That is what I believe my role is to toughen them up is to prepare them because life isn't going to say, are you okay? When you fall down and scrape your knee, right? Life is, especially with the life I've lived is taught me that it's not easy. Um, so I hope that people listening to this that disagree with my mindset is not because I think negatively about other people that live a different life. I don't care how anyone else lives their life. This is my own view of what makes me feel like a man and what makes me proud
0: to be a man. Yeah. That's an important distinction. I think, I think we're so trigger happy social media wise to, to, to counteract, to defend our own opinions, this, that, or whatever, and but to really just sit back and listen. And it's one of the reasons why I like podcasting because there's a little bit more space to get a little bit more information. Like you just shared, like, hey, this is what works for me and this is not, you're not necessarily preaching everybody else needs to live their life that way. Um, I do, mm-hmm. though, think that there is... On, on the note of what you just shared, I do think that there are times that even as a father, we can, well, let me take a step back. You said that you're not a very emotional person. I, the way that I experience you is incredibly emotional. I feel a lot of emotion coming from you. I mean, you're very, you've been very um, even keeled in this conversation, but I feel your energy, which to me is emotional. And you seem to be very vulnerable and open, which to me is a feminine energy. And, but you do it in a way that's powerful. And I think a lot of men are not doing that. And I think that balance of that feminine energy in men, and I don't mean, you know, being weak as, and I say that not because I think women are weak. I'm saying that because that's traditionally or, or oftentimes how people associate feminine energy in men is, oh, that's, that they're being weak. No, I'm, I'm saying that there's feminine energy that we get to capture and express and, do it in a powerful way and I, the way that I experience you is, is exactly that. So, but I will also say that in those moments of dealing with children, I think there are times where we can la- allow that, that nurturing, loving, empathetic, um, comforting energy to come out of us as men and I think it's important. I think it's important for our children to see that there are times that when I fall and I scrape my knee and even though it's not bleeding, that you know what, it's okay and come here, daddy, let daddy give you a hug, it's gonna be okay and not all the time and not as the predominant energy necessarily. I think that there's a, a unique balance that men and women come together and, in a, uh, a fully mature man and a fully mature woman, I would almost always look to the woman to lead with that nurturing, Cause I think they have an innate connection to life and love that, that is beyond me. Like I, I just, it, it's, it's hard for me as a man to even describe. It's just a, a mature evolved woman I just look to her to lead in love. Uh, I don't look to surpass mm. it. I look to be inspired by it, to emulate it, to, and in my moment, and I'm not saying that I'm, I don't do those things, but especially as a single father myself, I find that I have to be at times both the mother and the father. And I think even right. in, in in married relationships that there are times where the mother is absolutely the disciplinarian and she's got to put her foot down and be very clear with the structure and the order and that masculine energy. But of course, She's, you know, the mother too. And so I do think that, yes, you said, you know, there are times in life out, you know, once you grow up, there's going to be times in life when you're going to get kicked in the balls or you're going to metaphorically skin your knee and life isn't going to be there to put, put its arm around you and tell you everything is okay. And that is true, but isn't it nice when it does? Isn't it nice when you have a friend yeah. that calls you up and says, dude, how you doing? I heard you are dealing with this. Right. Are you okay? Dude, that's fucking amazing. <laughs> so yeah go ahead. well for me so so the relationship with that
1: I do have a relationship with my father now now it's not what a regular father-son relationship would be like for someone that's been raised with their dad more more often right but it, it does exist and what I respect about my relationship with my father is that when I call him with a struggle what in most times about my relationship right because what I respect about my father is he never has my back Um, he is very neutral. He will make me, he will speak to me as a man and he will make me see the reality of both sides, not just my own, which oftentimes is hard for us to do. Uh, which is why I call him because I know he will never disappoint me. He will always make sure that I see her side that I see where I screwed up. Right. And I think oftentimes we, we have our kids backs too much instead of the reality of, like, you got to see both sides, right? So now when extremes happen in my children's life, like we lost my unborn son. uh, And when that happened, and my children cried, you know, I, I comforted them, and I nurtured them, and I loved them. And um, when it has to do with I don't ever tell my son, be a man and don't cry. I always explain the difference between crying because you jammed your finger versus crying because something really bad happened that really hurts your feelings. Mm -hmm. And and the rule in my house is we don 't get angry and walk away, uh, and we don 't just cry and not talk. we communicate right If I made you mad uh, like i 've made my 10 year old daughter mad and she wanted to say really mean things, and I told her say it you know don 't hold that stuff in, say it, say those mean things you 're not going to hurt my feelings say it, and I think we get too emotionally involved um, when our kids want to say mean things to us, but our kids our, our kids aren 't going to like us all the time right we live with them 24 seven, this it's just not real. And I want my kids to be comfortable to communicate with me and tell me how they feel. As, as you said, I'm very vulnerable in everything. And in my life in my family, it has to be that way. I am always honest with my family. Every time that she's, my wife's ever cooked food that I don't like, I've never lied. And it's because, and it's not because I'm trying to be mean, right. But for me, it's like, if I lie about one thing, you're going to wonder if I'm lying about another. If I just tell the truth all the time, you will never have to be concerned. Even if the truth I know is going to hurt your feelings, I'm always going to tell the truth because that way you are never going to have to wonder if what I'm saying is a lie to make you feel better or to get out of trouble because you know, no matter what, even if it's going to hurt your feelings, I'm not going to lie. And I teach my kids that too. If you have something mean to say, if you are mad at daddy, let's talk about it. Say everything that you feel and be honest, be real because that's the only way we're going to resolve anything.
0: Oh, 100%. I, I definitely agree with you. I, I preach to my kids too. The communication is key. And I think as fathers, um, our opportunity and our, our, our fullest spiritual capability is to be the bearers of truth. And I think that's where mm-hmm. that, um, that energy of uh, that, that a father's love is special because it's earned – is because we do tell the truth. And uh, hey, babe, this lasagna tastes like crap. <laughs> you know, sometimes <laughs> you just gotta call a spade a spade. You know, it's funny. The feminine energy is, is, is uh, it's beautiful, but there are times where it can be very entertaining. I remember one time when I was uh, with my ex-wife and she had made dinner for everybody and it was a beautiful, she, she's a great cook. And she made uh, this dinner that had chicken and potatoes. And I took, I literally was, took the first bite of chicken and I go, oh, this chicken's delicious. And her immediate response was, you don't like the potatoes? <laughs> I'm like, good God. Second, I haven't even tried the potatoes. I'm sure they're amazing, but uh, it's just, you know, I, you have to, the more I grow and the more I mature and everything, I, I just appreciate that feminine energy more of, 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 they are the bearers of love, you know, and, and love doesn't have boundaries. Love doesn't have structure to it. It just, it, it un- encompasses all, it's, it's all filling and, but sometimes it's funny. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, how are you on time? Are you still good? I'm good. Okay. Um, did you, f- we've gone through a lot. Um, let's talk, uh, let's shift gears just a little bit about your business. Tell, tell me a little bit more about what you're doing and what your, what your vision is with that.
1: On the PR
0: side, or on this other side? Uh, what's the other side, the software thing,
1: or is that the now PR? the? Uh, I got the PR side and the personal development side. So uh, I'm interested in,
0: in both. <laughs>
1: okay, so the PR side is um, I, What we've done is we created a software which allows you to automate and uh, auto, have automated pitches. Which means, like, you find a reporter that you know would be interested in your story, you just don't know how to pitch them where you go is you go into the software, you fill out the form, which is asked you questions about about that contact, which are questions you can answer through their LinkedIn profile by looking at their LinkedIn profile, you press submit, it generates the pitch for you, you send it out. And now you can get that connection where you can start getting interviewed in the news, right? So that's on the PR side. And my goal was to create a company that I could not have such an active role in. Um, obviously, I have bills to pay and need to make sure that the houses rent is paid all that but this is PR is not where my passion is it just happened to be what I'm good at Mm -hmm. um so I had to find a way to make money so I can do my true passion which is the personal development side and that one I don't really know what that business is going to look like I just know that I want to help more people I want to take people on this journey I want to speak more um I probably am going to end up writing a book or having a book written for me I'm not a writer I'm a talker Mm -hmm. um and I'm sure my wife would agree with that wholeheartedly (laughs) but um it's just that that's that's the two things right the pr side built the software so i could escape an active role in the company and then on the personal development side that's gonna it's gonna figure out as it's gonna show itself to me right i think sometimes as entrepreneurs we get too caught up in trying to plan out the whole thing when oftentimes if we just sit back and allow things to happen, we'll we'll discover what it's meant to be
0: later on. Mm. What, what form does the personal development stuff look like right now? Do you have digital products? Is it coaching? Right now it's
1: purely content. Um, it will be, we're gonna do a 30 day challenge that I'm calling the Life Remade Challenge, which is where you uh, go through four phases, right? So the four phases is, hold on, let me pull this <laughs> out here. This is uh, this is new for me. So I think I, I might
0: memorize it yet. I think I might know what they are. Do you have it right there? Yeah, there it is. It's uh,
1: alteration, association, absolution, and alleviation, right? Okay. So there's the four phases we go through each one each week. Alteration is changing the way that we respond versus react, right? Oftentimes we react to situations instead of responding to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, it's also about changing the way we eat, what we do, the way we sleep, uh, the exercise that we get, uh, oftentimes when we get depressed or we have bad memories or we get through that tough time, we either eat too much or don't eat enough. We sleep too much or don't sleep enough. And I think, uh, it's all about remaking a life and you can't remake a life if you don't have a body, um, and a mind prepared for it. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's changing that. And then, um, you know, uh, association is about our surroundings. It's about strengthening the relationships with those where they're weak. Um, And it's about letting go of the relationships that are causing damage. And then um, we've got absolution, which is absolving yourself and anyone else that's ever hurt you from mistakes that have happened. And then alleviation. And this, alleviation is my favorite one, right? And alleviation is my favorite one because of one key thing. I think when you're people like me, Uh, that have gone through traumatic things, when you get to the point to where maybe you've been cheated on two or three times in two or three different relationships and what you start to become is hard and tough and you become uh, cold and you become distant and you become comfortable with being at war. You become comfortable with the idea that people are bad people. You become comfortable with not trusting people. You become comfortable with being angry and cold or just non-emotional or or numb. Mm -hmm. And alleviation is about... Once you've changed the way you think and the way you eat, once you've um, changed your surrounding and the relationships that you're in, and once you've forgiven yourself and the others that have hurt you, the hardest thing that you're gonna face is being comfortable with the idea that you're not at war anymore and getting out of that warrior mentality, right? A lot of people in the personal development world want you to become a warrior. They want you to be angry. I think that people like me who already are angry and already are at war all the time, the hardest part for us is to stop being angry, stop Mm -hmm. being that warrior and find true peace, right? Mm -hmm. Allow our life not to be so dramatic, not to be so crazy, not to be so filled with anger and distance and numbness and all of that. I think that's the hardest part of the entire
0: challenge. Wow. That's huge. Um, And you're right because – it feels like to the warrior to not be in war, it feels like they're being castrated. It feels like you're taking away my my greatest strength. Like this is my, my energy. I've, I've had this conversation now, oddly enough, like three times in the last 24 hours where especially alpha people, um, their desire to prove people wrong, to um, show them, you know, he, they said I couldn't make it now, watch this. Like if you take that away from them, that's scary. How do I, where's, that's all my drive. That's where my energy comes from. You take that away. I don't have the drive anymore. I don't have any energy. So being able to be at peace seems, um, seems like a type of, uh, castration seems like a type of you're taking away my drive. How do you, have you figured that out yet to where you have the peace while you still are hungry for more? And how do you balance that? Yeah. I mean, I think what happens, right, is
1: uh, when people like me, you're used to operating off of vengeance and anger and spite and proving people wrong and and all this. And it feels great. But what has happened after, you know, I'm 31 now, but the first 31 years of my life have definitely made me feel like I'm a lot older than 31 Mm -hmm. because of the experiences I've gone through. And it at first peace sounded boring, right? Like that's boring. What, how am I going to get anything done? How am i going to accomplish anything if I'm, if I don't have that drive. And I think what's important to understand is at some point that drive is going to exhaust you, right? At some point you are going to get tired of always being so pumped up. You're going to get tired of always being so filled with in energy and hate and anger and vengeance and spite. And it, it makes you feel energetic, but it's such negative energy that it's really sucking the life out of you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, some days it's just nice to sit back and think and just be calm, right. And just feel calm instead of feeling so pumped up full of energy. But I think it's important to have both to balance both of something. I'm still learning. I think that's going to be a journey in itself.
0: Yeah. I was telling, I was telling somebody yesterday um, she's a very elite uh, High-performing athlete and individual, and you're just talk about the drive. And I got—I know there's more. I got to keep pushing. And and uh, the metaphor that somebody shared with me one time was, you know, even the most advanced, sophisticated Formula One race car has brakes. Like we're meant to slow down at times, and sometimes—not sometimes—the slowing down is oftentimes the most productive times because you're, you're, you're taking a step back, you're listening, you're adjusting, you're reevaluating, um, you're turning, you're shifting. And, and uh, sometimes we get caught up in that go, go, go warrior energy of there's got to, you know, I got to conquer the mountain or whatever. But sometimes it's, it's a good thing to take a step back and go, is this the right mountain to conquer? Well, and if I right. do, like, what's the point of it? Is there value in that? Okay, great. I'll achieve that. I, you know, there's some people. There, there's another saying that says, um, "Rowing harder doesn't. Uh, Was it? Rowing harder doesn't solve the problem if you're rowing in the wrong direction. To me, and to mm-hmm. me, the slowing down is the is the rudder. Am I even pointing in the right direction? Let me just take it, take a step back, look at my landscape. Am I even going in the right direction? Um, um, you had mentioned the personal development stuff. I I know a lot of people in that space, in the personal development space, and even just the entrepreneur space where people are trying to create stuff on the side. You know, they've got the work, but they're trying to create a side hustle to maybe, you know, it's maybe more their passion. What is some advice that you can give those entrepreneurs in the PR space? Where where would they go? What would they do to help um, get the message out about what they're up to? The number one thing that you have to think
1: the first thing you always have to think about when you're trying to figure out the next business or the next product or service that you're gonna launch or whatever it is, oftentimes people think about, okay, what is it that the customers will buy? Obviously important. The most important part in my perspective as someone in the PR world is what makes you different? What makes you unique, right? So I'm gonna, I'm gonna give a few examples here. Um, Brendan Burchard, an amazing performance coach, amazing person. Now understand I am not throwing rocks at anybody, I am just explaining things, okay? Brandon Burchard, great high-performance coach, has accomplished a lot, experienced a car accident when he was 19, right? Survived the car accident. Tony Robbins, right? Had a rough upbringing, but did have a mom who loved him. Um, he did come from a, a poverty-stricken background, right? And did experience struggle throughout business. Uh, Garrett White, warrior, wake up warrior. Um, I don't know too much. He, you know, business was failing. His marriage was failing. He jumped back up. So, if we look at all of these big names in the development space and the performance space, one thing that I've noticed is not one of them has even been through one of my extreme situations, right? Now, they it doesn't discredit what they've been through. I am not here to compete about whose life was harder. I think that's stupid. I think everybody's been through their own challenge and that's the hardest thing they've been through. So I never degrade that. What I do notice is that if these guys can do it, You know, Brendan Burchard, who's got millions of followers, speaks around the world, amazing content. He's a great guy, right? I don't know him personally, great guy, but he experienced a car accident. How many people have experienced a car accident, right? So, and then you got me who's experienced prostitution, war, suicide, and murder by the age of 23. Then I lost my unborn son. And then all these things. And the thing is, is everybody talks about what you should do to fix your life. Right. And like you said, what I love and when you said this, Peter, is you said, Tony Robbins gave me a piece of advice of what I should do. And I didn't think that worked well for me. So I didn't do that. And I think what happens is a lot of these people in this space are teaching people what to do and telling them what to do when in reality, they're trying to make it seem like one size fits all. Right. right. And I don't believe in that. So for me, the way I'm doing it different, what makes me unique is I'm just sharing my journey. I'm sharing what I'm doing. I'm not telling people what to do i'm giving suggestions i'm asking questions but i'm not giving input i'm not giving advice i'm just talking about what i've done to overcome my circumstances so they can decide if that's right for them or Mm -hmm. you can at least start the conversation in their own head of where to figure out where to go so when you're figuring out how to get your message out there you have to find out what makes you different than everybody else in that space the personal development space is flooded with so many people and a lot of them or serving the masculine market about my marriage was failing. My business was crashing. And then I became a man and I did pushups in the sand. And now I'm a tough guy. And you know, it's like, what are you doing? That's different than what everybody else is saying. Right. So, and again, I'm not throwing rocks at everybody because obviously what they do works. Tony Robbins has changed so many people's lives. Brennan Burchard has changed so many people's lives. Garrett White has changed so many men's lives they have done great things, but I think it's important of understanding who your audience is and not replicating what someone else says. Tony Robbins has Tony Robbins coaches. Brendan Burchard has certified people that coach his content, but you don't want to be the next Tony Robbins. You don't want to be the next Brendan Burchard. I want to be the next Andrew O'Brien, right? Peter wants to be the Peter King. So it's about, finding your message, what makes you unique. And then that should be the first focus before you're worried about, you know, how do I say things like they do it or how do they do it? I don't, I don't look at anyone else's content. I make it my own way. I learn my own way and I have my own message.
0: Yeah. Once you, once you have that, once you have that differentiating component, then what do you do? How do you, how do you get the message out?
1: Publicity stunt. Publicity stunt is a negative word. It has a negative connotation to it, but it's not negative, right? So a publicity stunt is mean means just allowing the public to be part of something big. Right. So for example, to get my message out about this crazy journey. Yes, I want to make money on this crazy journey. Yes, I want to make money helping people. Yes, that is what I want to do in my life. I've done it before. I did it for three years. I loved it. I want, I want back on it. So What I am doing, I'm going to forgive my mother. I'm doing that for me. However, I'm inviting the media to go with me. Mm. Son of famous murderer walks over a hundred miles to go forgive his mother on a forgiveness journey. That's media worthy, right? That is something the news is going to love. So it's something that I could do by myself, but I would still share it on social media. I am inviting the media to join me because it's an extreme, right? So what is something extreme that you can do that the media would love to be part of that is going to be media worthy is finding that one extreme thing to launch your brand to launch your message to launch everything is this is this journey this 100 mile trek is something that is going to launch my message
0: on a national scale uh, a lot of people that i have worked with or seen and even just in my own journey like there's the conflict of, yes, I want to make a big impact, but being in the spotlight is scary, uh, you know, or like it takes a lot of confidence and a lot of courage to, uh, to make that bold claim, to do that bold thing, to invite uh, all the cameras and lights to follow your journey. People are scared about, you know, falling and, you know, failing. Um, Mm -hmm. What do you say to people in that way like i know a lot of them have huge hearts and they want to give in a huge way but they but they are scared and so they stay small how do you, what advice would you give somebody like that but it's really up to you on what, what you want to do, right? If you want
1: to be able to pay your bills and do all that and maybe take a couple of vacations a year, you can run a business without people really knowing who you are, except your customers. So I get, you really can do that. That is possible. But if you're really wanting to make an impact, you're going to have to find a way to overcome that, right? I mean, I share my story so transparently and I think the reason that I'm able to do it without fear is because I just stopped caring what people thought. It's because not only did I stop caring about what people thought about me, it's also because when I first started sharing my story, I had so many people come up to me and tell me how much of a positive impact that had on their life. Uh, I had a lot of people over three years. I I traveled the world speaking uh, for the United States government for three years. was one of the most requested military speakers. I spoke at the White House. I got to do some really cool things. I got a lot of awards and recognition for my work. Uh, And it was all about mental health. And you know what? I didn't give one piece of advice. All I did was share my story. I was literally just a storyteller. But what happened was by me sharing that story, it made others realize they weren't alone, which prevented them from taking their own life because they felt like they were weak. And so I had countless people come up and shake my hand and tell me face to face or over an email or over the phone that simply by hearing my story, stop them from killing themselves. And it was when I heard that, right? That's better than any paycheck. It's better than any amount of money. When someone tells you that you just saved a life, a human life that, you stop caring about the negative. You stop caring about the people that tell you, I've had people tell me you should have succeeded, go kill yourself. Like I've had people say really negative, really mean things, but I don't care because that just means that message is not for them. I stopped caring about what they thought because it impacted people in such a positive way.
0: You made, you made an important distinction there at the end. I think I've been hearing this a lot where people say, stop caring what other people think. And I think, there's a, there's a asterisk on that, which needs to be stop caring about what the wrong people think. Cause we all care about what people think we want. We want the right people to care what we think. You want the guy that, you, you know, you saved his life because he heard the message in a way that, that changed his behavior and he wants to, he, he values his life now. I mean that of course we want to be heard by that person. Right. But we just, we need to right, make right. sure that we don't care about the wrong people. Um, what keeps you up at night? What keeps
1: me up at night is trying to figure out how, how to move to that next place in my life that I want to be right. So it's how do I get to the level of people like Brendan Burchard and Tony Robbins and all these people that dominate the industry? Um, how do I get my message out there further without it being nonprofit? Understand, I want to change the world, I want to impact lives, and I did the nonprofit stuff in the past but I need to make money and I like money. I'm, I don't live for money, but I do like money. I do want to be able to take my kids out and do nice things. and I want to be able to live a nice life while making an impact and it's trying to find that balance, right? How do I help people um, overcome their challenges while I also make money um, and not have to deal with the guilt of making money, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, it's, a, it's a balance. It's hard to figure mm-hmm. out, okay, that person really needs help but I really need to pay my electric bill. You know what I mean? Like, totally. How do you find that balance?
0: Gotcha. Um, how, how do you want to be remembered? Not, not after this life per se, but just uh, when somebody comes in contact with you or your business, what are three words that you would like to use people, you would like other people to use to describe an interaction with you or your business? Um,
1: transparent, empathetic, and caring. So the reason I say that is because I want everybody to know that no matter what, I'm always going to share the truth um, about who I am, the mistakes I make, the flaws that I have, the journey I'm on. Um, and I want, I want people to remember me. Uh, I want a legacy of being the person who was the window um, or the mirror to their own soul, right? The, the person who finally helped them look back on themselves uh, forgive someone that hurt them, create a better life. I want to be part of their world that impacted them to become a better life. And I want my kids to know that that's what their daddy was known for. That's the work that their daddy did. I want them to remember me, not because we made good money, not because I had successful businesses, but because of the impact that I made.
0: Mm, I love that, man. Um, probably a good note to sort of tie this up and wrap it up. Um, Andrew man I I knew this was going to be a good call um, you've been the most uh, I would say arguably I've had some other really amazing calls but this has been arguably the most uh, vulnerable and transparent call so I will definitely remember you because of that um, I appreciate your willingness to share the journey and not just you know I, I've known people to be very vulnerable and transparent with their past but for you to be the same way in the present and be like, Hey man, I'm, I'm, I'm working through the, this relationship issue right now. We're going to do like, that's just very inspiring. And, um and I know you're going to get a lot of followers on that alone because uh, we're all dealing with stuff quietly. And, and so anyway, I, I appreciate you, man. I think you're up to cool shit and uh, I'm a fan. So let's stay in touch. But again, thanks for the time today and, and your willingness to share. Thanks for having me on and letting me share. All right. Good deal. Thanks brother. Thank you.